0: Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Wayment. Today on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about appendicitis. Joining me here in the podcast studio, Pediatric Surgeon-in-Chief Ian Mitchell and Pediatric Emergency Room Dr. Priyanka Kondal, both work at UT Health San Antonio and University Health. Thanks for being here in the podcast studio. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Can you tell me a bit about your professional interests, Ian?
1: So from a professional standpoint, I have always been interested in basically all the aspects of pediatric surgery, specifically um, minimally invasive surgery, pushing the, not pushing the envelope, but um, using new technology and new techniques, both in the abdomen um, and especially in the chest. And then uh, I've had a long history working with the Pediatric Trauma Society um, in developing guidelines for them and for the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma so a little bit all over the place.
0: And Ian, you were born in Buffalo, and I hear you're a diehard Bills fan.
1: Yeah, we squished the fish last weekend, and it's the Bengals (laughs) coming up next, so uh, we'll see how we do.
0: Is your wife a fan as well? She's a plastic surgeon, right?
1: My wife is a pediatric plastic surgeon who was born in Mexico, and she has been dragged into the misery of being a Buffalo Bills fan, (laughs) Um, but now we have a four-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old who all wear Bill's gear. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens when they grow up.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about your interests outside of medicine?
1: Um, I. Used to be a rugby player and used to run marathons. We have a four year old, a six year old, and an eight year old, so those are my interests outside of medicine. I'd love to say I've seen an adult movie, or sorry, not an adult movie, a grown up movie. (laughs) No, I mean. (laughs) In the last couple months, uh, but I haven't. I think I'm a strict Paw Patrol diet right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, And I know you were telling me you're going through a midlife crisis.
1: I am. Actually, my (laughs) midlife crisis is CrossFit and learning to snowboard at the age of 46, which I am remaining moderately injury free, so so far we're doing okay.
0: <laughs> that sounds good and healthy. Kind of dangerous though, both both those sports. <laughs> and how's it going in the new Women and Children's Hospital? You're getting your MBA mm-hmm. and helping with that, right?
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, getting an MBA through um, that is being uh, helped by UT Health, um, and I'm getting it through UTSA, and it's really a great program. It's a mix of. Business people, healthcare people, and military, um, and so that's a, a really interesting mix to have all in one room. Um, and then with women's and children's, we're the build the outside of the building is done. Now we're working on getting the inside going. We're on schedule for our August first opening, and really having meeting after meeting about how to move uh, more than a hundred patients from several different parts of the building into the new hospital. So I think we're we're on track. We're on schedule. Uh, we should be ready to start. Really doing practice runs in July and get ready for the big day.
0: And the big day, remind me?
1: August 1st, it's Tuesday.
0: That's exciting. Mm -hmm. So, and Priyanka, thanks again for joining us here today. Uh, You're from Georgia. You did your undergraduate at Emory and med school at Medical College of Georgia, and then you moved up to Baltimore for residency, and you did a combined emergency medicine and pediatrics residency program?
2: Yeah, it's uh, not quite as common as the the typical path to uh, pediatric emergency medicine, but it's a combined residency, just like you said, so kind of like doing both residencies back to back. Instead, uh, it was all at once, a five-year program. And so you're double-boarded. I am
0: double-boarded, yeah. Was that hard to do both? Or? Um, it, it was actually,
2: for me, it was perfect because when I got a little bit burnt out of all the grown-ups, I got to go hang out with some kids for a while, and then when I wanted to do something a little different, I got to switch back and forth a lot. I really love both aspects of my training. It was definitely the right fit for me. It was long, though. And you're pretty new to San Antonio? Yeah, um, my husband and I moved here about a year and a half ago now.
0: We're um, really enjoying exploring and finding all these little pockets of the city. And so you enjoy outside of medicine hiking? I know you were telling me earlier. Yeah, um, we we used to do a lot of hiking. We, we were long distance
2: in training, so we actually first lived together once we arrived in San Antonio. Um, So we've kind of been exploring some of the parks nearby, and we're walking distance from some of the parks, so we can kind of go for walks pretty frequently. We're also foodies,
0: so definitely exploring a lot of the restaurant scene and trying to recreate things at home. Do you have a favorite hike here in town for our listeners in San Antonio and the surrounding area? I love the hill country. It's such a great... I don't know the names of anything we have done,
2: to be totally honest. (laughs) He's the one who keeps track of all of them. So we've done some really nice ones. um, But I'm told we have to make our way out to Big Bend. So that's kind of our next time we have a couple days in a
0: row off. That's our our goal. I just recommend going not in the summer. That's fair. It gets a little hot. (laughs) (laughs) So um, do each of you, you know, here on Pediatrics Now, we like to bring up some quotes for our listeners. I know, Ian, you had mentioned that you... Have a quote that you'd like to...
1: Oh, so from mine, uh, in my MBA class, you're just starting, to, we're about three or four months in, and one of the things is sort of a bias towards action, and that, that in some of our organizational behavior work that we do, you sort of learn how you can get stuck in a rut, and at the same time, while my outlet was listening to books, so um, and listening to one of Lincoln's, biog- rather, Grant's biography um, there's a great quote that, that Grant recalled that Rosencrantz is, uh, described the very clearly the situation in Chattanooga. And he made some excellent suggestions as to what should be done. My only wonder is why he hadn't carried them out. And I, I love it because it's from, you know, more than you know, it's 200 years ago or close to 200 years ago. And the same situation comes up again and again as, oh, I know exactly what to do. Well, then why didn't you do it?
0: And that's important in me- in medicine mm-hmm. to really follow through and on so many things. I, I love that quote. What about you? Um, I
2: think uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, when I'm pretty involved in teaching with the emergency medicine department, and one of the things that I try and emphasize to our residents is the most common diagnosis that you miss is the one you didn't consider. Um, so as we kind of start thinking about appendicitis, we have to remember to keep it on our differential because even if it doesn't present
0: classically, we don't want to miss it. Well, let's dive in to appendicitis. Um, for our listeners, you know, as as our listeners know, it's most common in teens and young adults, but younger children, children even four and under, can get it? Uh,
2: yeah, so uh, it's definitely much more common in Children, school age and up, seven to seventeen. Um, however, younger children definitely can get it, and they are the ones who are much more likely to have those misdiagnoses. So, uh, actually, even newborns can have appendicitis. It is exceedingly rare, but um, but is something that can happen.
1: What you also see in the younger age groups is a tendency towards perforation. So, the over the age of five your perforation rates are probably in the 25 to 30 percent range depending on who you read. Once you get to five and under it goes to 70 percent and once you get to three and under I think I can count on one hand the number of of children I've operated on who weren't perforated under the age of three. That's still a tiny number of children but um, you know when we see a pediatric emergency room then you're eventually going to see those unusual cases in those younger children.
0: And symptoms can be different in younger children versus older children? Yeah, so the classic
2: presentation of peri-umbilical pain migrating to the right lower quadrant with anorexia and vomiting and fever is much more common in the young adult and adolescent population. The younger the children get, the more vague their symptoms tend to be. Of course, the younger they are, the more difficult their exam is going to be. Um, so the diagnosis is definitely a lot harder to come to in that population, which is probably why they have a higher rate of misdiagnoses. Um, but they tend to have a little bit, uh, a little bit less of that migration of pain. They might have more generalized pain. They're typically still tender if you push in the right lower quadrant, but they are definitely not presenting with that classic, oh, it started here and it moved over here.
0: So how do practitioners decide whether to schedule an, um, an emergency appendectomy to remove the inflamed appendix, a procedure that carries its own risks like any surgery, or wait and observe what could be a ticking time bomb?
1: From a, from a surgical standpoint, once a diagnosis has been made, um, there are a couple branch points. One of the branch points is... Um, Is this perforated appendicitis is it not or we can't tell. Um, There's pretty good although somewhat controversial data still that says once you've made the diagnosis within 24 hours your if you operate within or you treat within 24 hours your perforation rates don't increase. I think we can say with with pretty good confidence that that is the case. So Um, whereas appendicitis used to be you need to come in and operate at two o'clock in the morning. Um, It's one of those things now where you need, most appendectomies can be done in daylight hours. Um, And the perforation rate doesn't go up. That doesn't mean they're not perforated. It just means the rates don't go up. Um, Oftentimes, like I said, in the younger population, you may have kids who the parents will swear up and down that 24 hours earlier this child was running around, eating, doing fine like nobody's business, and you get, you know, you operate on them, and they've got a, a you know, a, a fairly perforated appendicitis. You'll also see kids who have just not done well for a few days, three or four or five days, and then those are the ones that often you may find an abscess in there. Or something. So the timing of the operation is get it done as soon as you can, but it's better to have a, a, an awake surgeon, awake anesthesiologist, and awake operating team um, than doing them in the middle of the
0: night. And as we know, of course, pediatric practitioners see a lot of kids who have pain, stomach pain, and nausea. So how do you know? How do you, what do you look for?
2: For me, one of the signs that I always look for is any sort of peritoneal signs, um, which can present a little bit differently in children and can be a little bit harder to elicit because sometimes a child is afraid as you approach um, so, maybe they're crying before you start doing anything, and it can be very hard to differentiate what is tenderness versus fear. Um, but a big thing for me is I try and have all of the kids who are old enough to do so jump up and down. Um, do they have pain when they're changing positions in the bed? Do they have pain when they're walking? Those are all signs that there's some peritoneal inflammation. Um, we had talked earlier about the the classic, the bumps in the road when we were driving here were hurting him. That is concerning to me, and that will definitely raise my suspicion for something like appendicitis, because as you said, a lot of kids will have abdominal pain for a lot of reasons,
0: um, and appendicitis is only one of them. That's great advice, Priyanka. Ian, do you want to add anything to that to our pediatric listeners?
1: I always laugh because people think I'm an expert in appendicitis and I always tell everybody I'm an expert once somebody's told me the child has appendicitis. But um, in, in all reality, the ED physicians and, the, and pediatricians in the community see hundreds if not thousands of children with, with um, pain and I think would emphasize really what Dr. Condal said and, and, and one other point is that the best test of all is time and that for the appendicitis is not an emergency from a surgeon standpoint. Uh, whether we operate six hours from now or right now, obviously I'd like this child to get done things taken care of quickly, but really giving things time allows you to make those differentiations between kids who may have a virus, may have a million other reasons why they have abdominal pain versus ones who are gonna get better um, or who are not gonna get better. and. I think we'd be safe to say that appendicitis does not get better on its own. But sometimes, you know, do you need to be admitted for that? depends. Or will six hours, eight hours, 12 hours really help you along the way? And I think emphasizing with families, and I've done this I don't know how many times in the ED, we've got a CT scan that says possible appendicitis, and I've come having, again, had the benefit of a child who's had IV fluids and Motrin and a bunch of other things. And I'll examine the child and say, well, I don't think this child has appendicitis. I give them my cell phone number and my email, and I say, I ain't going anywhere for the next 48 hours, because, of course, they always come in on Friday night, and mm-hmm. call me. If it gets worse, we'll go from there. And I'd like to say my batting average would get me in the Hall of Fame. It's pretty good, um, but it's certainly not you know, 1,000%. But that element of time, Motrin, Paw Patrol, and Jell-O is not gonna make appendicitis get better. Um, And so using that time to help make the diagnosis is something that if you don't have the benefit of a CT scanner or or an MRI machine or ultrasound or a laparoscope um, in an outpatient setting, emphasizing to families that time is our friend um, can really help.
2: I think that's so key. Um, you don't always know sometimes, and I have this conversation very regularly in the emergency department, sometimes it's too soon to tell, Um, but children will declare themselves. If they look well, if someone presents to you and they look okay, they have some abdominal pain, there's some vomiting, they look okay, they don't have fever, they don't have a particularly impressive abdominal exam, going over, here's what you should watch for at home. These are the reasons to come back. Return precautions are really key. Um, and if you have suspicion, maybe scheduling them for close follow-up so someone is going to take another look at that child within a reasonable amount of time, 24 to 48 hours, um,
0: that that goes such a long way. And I, th- I think um, a lot of our listeners may not know that University Hospital is a level one trauma center. Is it one of only two, I think, in our city with that designation where it's, you can handle the worst of the worst, right? And um, what inspired you to become an emergency medicine doctor? Uh, I think
2: I really like the idea of taking care of everybody who walks in the door, no matter what's going on with them. Um, And I a little bit like most of the uh, emergency doctors, a little bit ADD. I don't want to do the same thing every day, so I like having some variety going from one room with a kid with abdominal pain to maybe a newborn with a fever to cough and cold type things to anxiety. You know, there's never never a boring day in the emergency department.
0: I can only imagine. (laughs) Are we ready for a case? Sounds good. A pediatrician in the community gets an early evening phone call from a parent of an 8-year-old boy who is normally very healthy, has occasional constipation, but has been low-key over the day and complaining of abdominal pain, and he's been able to eat, although less, did go to school, and is not having fevers. Do you observe overnight? Do you send to the ED? What, what do you do?
2: I think the big thing is assessing the, the parent's comfort level with watching, of course, the emergency department is 24-7, we're happy to see that child no matter what and no matter when. Um, this child sounds like you know, they're eating, they're not vomiting, they don't have a fever yet, um, maybe something's going to develop, but like, like we were talking about earlier, time is going to be the real determining factor. It's a little bit hard when you can't examine the child yourself and you have to make a call one way or another, and if you have any doubt, it's always better safe than sorry. We are always happy to see any child that you have a concern about. Um, but if the family is comfortable with the idea, watching and waiting and see what seeing what happens over the course of the next day, with a discussion of those precautions, if this happens, if this happens, if this happens, come in if he's vomiting and he can't keep anything down if he's saying the pain is worse if he starts having a fever those are all things that i would say deserve an earlier evaluation if possible and someone laying hands on the on the kid's belly but um but that sounds like a kid that probably could be observed at home and evaluated in the morning if the family is comfortable with that if the family is not comfortable with that by all means we are very happy to see
0: them so in this case the patient then ends up they go home and the child is observed overnight by the parents or caregivers, but he develops a fever and vomiting and then comes to the ED the next day.
2: And I would say that's perfect that's a system working perfectly. I think if you're giving return precautions you shouldn't be afraid to say, we'll just keep an eye on it. Um, so this kid now presenting the story is now a little bit more concerning for a possible appendicitis and we would take those next steps to start looking for them.
0: Should we look at our second case or is there anything you wanted to mention, Ian? I think um, for
1: this case, you know, the the ED management um, it differs a little bit from the adult side. I know that um, traditionally, you know, originally before the invention of anything, this was well we should have a thirty per twenty percent negative appendectomy, right? We should take out twenty out of every one hundred normal appendixes to make sure we weren't missing anything, but I think now both our diagnostic sensitivity and also our imaging has improved that um, in the pediatric context, we look at trying to avoid CT scanning when we can um, for the radiation concerns that exist. And so um, generally the first step is usually an ultrasound. There are national and regional (laughs) differences in people's confidence with ultrasound. I think as time moves on, Um, Certainly from the surgical side, more and more um, surgeons are comfortable going to the operating room with a physical examination, a white cell count, a history, and an ultrasound in any particular order that we get them. Um, There are others who still prefer a CT scan, Um, but I think the the national standards and the national quality projects all really focus on ultrasound as a first line and really using um, CT, and you wouldn't believe it, but MRI, Uh, coming down certainly has been looked at as well as sort of second-line imaging for those cases that are unclear. Um, But certainly a a case like this, a a straightforward history, straightforward exam, and a positive ultrasound, um, from my standpoint, would take them up to the operating room. In children who are um, not obese, I do a single-port appendectomy. They go to sleep with uh, a general anesthesia Make a small incision through their belly button. Have a special laparoscope that allows you to grab the appendix, pull it out their belly button, take it out, and close their belly button. Um, it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a gimmick because you could do it with three ports, but then they would have two other small incisions. In this way, um, a lot of times the families are like, "Well, we can't find the incision afterwards." And we always joke: surgeons think the purpose of a human belly button is to hide the incision for the laparoscope. So. <laughs> um, Those are, I'd say that is a very traditional route. um, And and the difference between a single port and a three port appendectomy, a lot of people are doing, myself included, a same day discharge. So um, I'm very proud when we get a child who's diagnosed with ultrasound, goes to the OR, gets an appendectomy and goes home and they've spent six hours in the healthcare system. And we have certainly been able to achieve that in the city of San Antonio, and want to continue to improve on that time when when it's appropriate, when it's the right thing to do, um, and the parents, as best as our feedback is able to determine, and lots of studies have shown it, they prefer going home. I mean, in the end, the only difference between here and there is maybe a little bit of Norco and one or two doses of doses of morphine, but with our multimodality pain control and tap blocks, um, we find the kids don't need narcotics and mostly it just constipates them post-op so
0: and they can sleep in their own bed at night the kids Mm -hmm.
2: that's great and ultrasound is is definitely practitioner dependent and dependent on um, where you are places that see more pediatrics the ultrasonographers will be more comfortable with identifying the appendix and signs of appendicitis however um, at places where there has been sufficient training the sensitivity and specificity of uh, ultrasound for appendicitis is increasing. And even a lot of people will say, oh, well, this child is obese, ultrasound won't work, let's just go straight to CT. But the literature has shown that even in obese children, it's worth starting with ultrasound. You can always do a CT after ultrasound. There's no reason not to do so. Um, But even in obese children, the rates of finding the appendix are uh, are not less than in children who aren't obese. So definitely, if you have the ability to do so, ultrasound is always where I start.
0: Let's look at a case. This one involves a 14-year-old with moderately, uh, she's a moderately obese female with four days of abdominal pain that comes and goes, but never goes away. Now continuous and has really not been eating very much. Minimal vomiting, but developed diarrhea yesterday and now complains of pain with urination and she just looks whooped?
2: I think this is a child that needs a workup. Whether, of course, the differential is broad. I'm not necessarily hearing the story and thinking, this is definitely appendicitis, but it's on my differential. Again, you missed the diagnosis that you didn't think about. So um, this is a child that needs a urinalysis. Uh, Adolescent females have a whole slew of other differential diagnoses that you won't see in younger children, we need to start thinking about things, about more pelvic things, ovarian torsion, ectopic pregnancies, um, and, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, things like that. Um, this is a good, a good case to remind you that you need to do a genital urinary exam for every child with abdominal pain. It can be quick. It doesn't have to be a full pelvic exam in every in every adolescent female, because obviously that's a sensitive exam, but especially boys, they don't want to tell you if there's something going on with their testicles. They don't want to tell you that, so you have to look because you will miss the testicular diagnosis. It will present as abdominal pain. Um, so this is a child that needs a workup, um, a urinalysis because she is having some dysuria. But one important thing to know is that I think it's like twenty percent of appendicitis is accompanied by sterile pyuria. So A lot of the urines are going to show white blood cells. They won't show bacteria. They won't grow anything in their cultures, but they will look like a UTI. So if you have high clinical suspicion based on your exam, then a positive urine shouldn't
0: shouldn't make you say this is not appendicitis. Is there anything else to look for with this 14-year-old child? Any key warning
2: sign? I think it would depend on their exam. I think the next step from here is really the exam. Um, where are they tender? Do they have any of those peritoneal signs? All of the signs we talk about, the ROPSing, the psoas sign, the obturator sign, all of those things are a little bit less sensitive in children than they are in adults, but worth doing to see. And uh, do, they, do they have that right lower quadrant pain? Are they PO tolerant? How do they look? a little whooped. You know, (laughs) what does that really look like to you? Um, There are a number of scoring tools for appendicitis that involve laboratory findings and the elements of the history and elements of the exam. The important things, so this is the Alvarado score, the pediatric appendicitis score. There's a few other ones. They all have very similar items in their scoring. Um, they're all looking at a white count and they're looking at the neutrophil percentage and then they're looking at the story. Where, does it, where are they tender? What is their exam like? Um, the important thing is none of those scoring tools have been shown to be more effective than an experienced examiner. So if you are an experienced clinician, your Gestalt is just as good as these scoring tools. They can be used to aid your decision and by all means use them, but if you have a suspicion for something, your, your
0: Gestalt is just as good. So in this case the child should go to the emergency department and get get that work up. Yeah, I I think that
2: I think that if you know, a pediatrician's office can probably do some elements of that depending on what what the office has. Most most pediatricians' office at least I think can do a urinalysis and a urine pregnancy test, and that's a good place to start, laying hands on the belly and seeing are you concerned about an intra abdominal pathology? And if so, I think this child should be sent to the
0: emergency department. And finally the ultimate can of worms, can we treat appendicitis without surgery?
1: (laughs) The answer is yes, but we don't know who. And um, I always laugh, I said, when I tell patients, I really don't think you have appendicitis and want to send you home, they sort of look at me and I said, that's like a used car salesman trying to tell you, don't buy this car, Mm -hmm. right? I'm a surgeon, this is what I do. Non-operative appendicitis, we've known for a long time that you can. And if you think about it, think of a situation where you take a whole bunch of 18 through 25-year-old males, put them in a tin can under the ocean for a while. One of them is going to get appendicitis, and you might be days, if not weeks, away from anywhere where you can treat them. So the only thing you had to offer was antibiotics, and it proved that you can get through appendicitis in some cases without surgery. Um, So that does happen and there has been a significant increase in interest in non-operative management of appendicitis i would say in the last 10 years on the pediatric side um, probably one of the best studies out of 2020 was a midwest consortium which is a large group of pediatric centers that uh, that do pediatric surgical research and probably has six to eight hundred patients um, in total in that study and it was an interesting protocol, because what it was is you had to have a lot of different things. You had to be seven years or older. You had an ultrasound or CT-proven diagnosis. Your white cell couldn't count, couldn't be super high. Um, you had to have appendiceal thickness greater than 1.1 centimeters. And then the treatment was you were admitted and observe. you were admitted and given 24 hours of antibiotics. And if you were getting better, then you were given outpatient antibiotics and sent home. And if you went two days and still weren't getting better, then you got an operation. And when it all came out in the results, 67% of children still had their, who were treated non-operatively, still had their appendix in after one year. So you start thinking about that. Now they also had only a 75% follow-up rate, which is pretty good, but statistically starts to lend itself some problems. And so if you kind of take all of that and now think about it in the practical perspective, okay. I've got to keep a kid in the hospital for 24 hours. Well, our previous conversation was, I'd like to have you in, out, and you know, at home playing Nintendo Switch in eight hours. Um, now, you've had an operation. We typically, you, know, you ask when can a child go back to playing sports, and people used to say two weeks, and then people used to say 10 days, and my answer is when their belly button doesn't hurt enough to play sports. Um, And the parents would go, well, they play football. And I said, well, don't play football until your belly button doesn't hurt. Um, So we start to think about that. You're keeping kids in the hospital for, remember, these are not perforated appendicitis. They're not kids with other medical problems. They're not complicated kids. These are those straightforward sort of first scenario we talked about. It can be done, and sixty-seven percent of the time you're gonna you're gonna quote get away with it over the course of a year. So is it is this a family who, for whatever reason, can't have surgery now? And, and there are maybe a million reasons why that's the case. The problem is, is just because you can't have surgery, that means if you follow all of the protocols, you got to stay in the hospital for twenty-four hours. Um, so the answer to the question is yes, it can be done. But again, and w- we know it can be done. We've got some idea, at least, who we've tried it in. If you have a fecalith in your appendix, nope. So that's 30% of candidates off the bat. All of that to say is that it can be done. We're not really sure on who it should be done and how you can predict who's going to succeed and who's not. We have, I have personally done it many times, but honestly by, I would say, a little bit of accident-like. Someone is transferred in, has a CT scan that suggests appendicitis. They've gotten antibiotics at another institution. By the time we saw them in the morning, you know, it wasn't the best looking CT. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit of thickening. They've now got antibiotics and the kid is hungry and has no pain. And then what do you do? And the answer is, well, you give them some antibiotics and feed them and send them home. So we've certainly done that, Um, but again, not what we would call, I think, the standard of care, if you were going to throw that out right now, but it is absolutely a reasonable thing to suggest in the right population.
0: And Ian, what inspired you to become a pediatric surgeon?
1: I had a thoracotomy, so I, had a, I was um, 15 years old living in Toronto and had a bronchogenic cyst. Um, which was diagnosed because I ran home from a party in shorts and a t-shirt, which doesn't sound so bad except it's January in Toronto, um, <laughs> things that teenagers do. Anyway, I got pneumonia and it was identified that I had a, a bronchogenic cyst. This was 1992 in Canada. I got a CT scan, which was pretty impressive at the time to get be able to get a CT scan. But at any rate, I ended up having a thoracotomy and having my right lower lobe removed and I had an amazing group of docs and one who I really didn't like and thought he was awful, and I thought I could do it better than him. And so this is pretty much, I'm one of those weird ones. This is all I've wanted to do since I was basically 15 years old.
0: Ian, Priyanka, this has been so insightful. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Is, is there anything we didn't go over that you'd like our listeners to know about before we wrap up?
2: Um, only one more little pearl. It is okay to give the kid pain medicine. Don't tell the parents avoid Tylenol Motrin at home. Let them treat the child's pain. Uh, it doesn't change our rates of being able to identify any problems if they were to come in later. It's okay to treat, treat them for pain if they're having it.
1: From my standpoint, I, same thing. I, I think I've said it before. I have it easy. Most people have seen at least one, if not two physicians before they get to me making the diagnosis. I don't make the diagnosis of appendicitis very often. I just treat it. Every single physician I know who's taking care of children has missed the diagnosis of appendicitis. It is a verifiable fact. It will happen. It doesn't make it any easier when it happens. um, And you don't want it to happen too often. But to everyone out there, I, I just think... The number of times that somebody has said, I can't believe I missed the diagnosis, and the answer is every pediatrician that I've ever worked with has missed this diagnosis. It is gonna happen. We try and minimize it, um, but try and go easy on yourself.
0: Dr. Ian Mitchell, Dr. Priyanka Kondal, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. Pediatrics Now is produced by Nick Mary. I'm Holly Wehment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.